Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to Midpoint. My guest today is a British actress who started her career on stage with the Royal Shakespeare Company, but very quickly came to the attention of Hollywood. After starring in the 1997 blockbuster The Postman, she was cast alongside Bruce Willis in Sixth Sense, one of the highest grossing films of all time. Olivia Williams' subsequent film credits are extremely impressive and her role in The Heart of Me earned her an award for Best Actress at the British Independent Film Awards. As well as playing an array of roles on our TV screens over the last two decades, Olivia has always retained her great passion for theatre and consistently treads the boards of the national. Olivia is also a mother to two daughters and an ambassador for Pancreatic Cancer UK after being diagnosed with a rare tumour in 2018. We're going to talk about all of this and a whole lot more. So let's meet Olivia. Olivia Williams, it is so lovely to have you finally on the midpoint. We've been trying to get this off the Hello. ground for a while, haven't we? <laughs> we made it. We made it against all the odds. We, and it's because you're so busy still as, a, I'm going to say still as an actress. Uh, there's a bit of a you know an, an inference there, isn't there? But you are busy all the time. And also, I can't think, you know, kind of if I went back 20 years, if I'd asked a Hollywood actress to come on a podcast called The Midpoint, uh, no, sorry, darling, I'm not admitting to anything like being in, in midlife or middle age. Um, but I think that is a kind of sign of the times, the changing times, actually, in terms of actresses and the kind of work that we see women of later years doing. And, you know, it's not this obsession with youth finally seems to be dissolving. Does it feel like that with you? I, I sort of hit hit a rich vein um not not from the very beginning when i left drama school and was young i didn't have a this awful thing of having a playing age i didn't i didn't seem like my age um i seemed about 45 when i was 19 and uh, so probably when i was about 9 actually so so for me uh, hitting my playing age is is just been joyful um as the sort of daughter of two lawyers, I always had a rather kind of measured and uh, some would say pretentious delivery that um, that wasn't great for playing Juliet, but is marvellous for <laughs> for doctors, lawyers, astronauts, scientists, and uh, and the rich uh, line of work I've had since. Yeah. And does it feel like the industry as a whole? Uh, you know, has changed a lot in the time that you've worked in it, not just in front of the camera, behind the camera, the opportunities for women to, to stay working in the industry, or is there still work to be done there? I think there's still work to be done. I think there's been a huge change. I mean, um, the in the roles, as I said, I, I mean, my mum was a QC, now a Casey, a, a King's Counsel, a barrister and a, and a judge. And but there's always a bit of a lag um, for for you to see that in in drama. But the the gap is close is closed now, I think. And I think I think the spread of women doing these roles in drama might exceed what's happening in in so called real life, um, where people of color and people of all genders and no gender um, are all playing roles that. You know, we might be a bit like Star Trek, slightly ahead of the time, which is can only be a good thing to inspire um, the next generation that anything's possible. But the biggest change, I would say, and you know, the the thing that has sort of made me suddenly feel like a member of a different generation of the older generation is is the sort of post Me Too and um, and the changes in the industry that have come through. Uh, the way you behave at work and the way you speak and uh, the issues around um, coercion and having um, intimacy coordinators and how careful people are now of each other where, you know, back in the day, they really weren't. (laughs) Mm. 
I'm sure you could tell a few tales. Um, how's yes. it though? In, in some ways, because uh, I, I work with some younger men in particular, actually in their kind of early thirties. And there's one I was working with during the World Cup, and and he was so worried about things that he thought might be offensive that that I. I could see what he was trying to say, but I, I, I really didn't feel that this was something we had to take out of a particular piece that we were playing. And, and I think that awareness is great. But when it comes to an artistic interpretation of something and creativity, do you worry sometimes that people are almost second guessing themselves too much? Or is that the way I we've got to go until it swings back? I worry about it all the time. No, we, but in, in a sense, we're in that transition period where change is hard and we do have to watch what we say but for our children it will be it all, all already is for some second nature and mm. being careful uh, fine you know people going oh but nothing's funny anymore and you're not allowed to make jokes our kids aren't having any trouble telling jokes they're having a great time and they things that they say are very funny but they're, they're not the things we found funny and the things we found funny are offensive to them. And, you know, it, it swings, you know, I do remember this moment with my parents when my father exclaimed, you know, why is this label written in such small print? I can't see it. It's ridiculous. And I looked at it and I thought, what's he talking about? It's huge. <laughs> and, and I see that as a moment, both, you know, literal and metaphorical when you become part of... <laughs> of the last generation uh you need reading glasses to read and you don't find the jokes funny and something that makes me howl with laughter leaves my children slightly perplexed and faintly offended and, and did you do you remember that with your father then seeing him find things funny that even then you didn't you know do you think it's forever thus that we will always be evolving uh, what we find funny what we find entertaining because of our sensitivities or our development you know it depends, it's what prism you want to see it through isn't it yeah, I mean, you know, I remember watching Benny Hill with my parents and laughing and then watching Benny Hill with my parents and going, you know, this is sexist bollocks. And then um, watching Benny Hill now and just going, what were, what were we thinking? And it's not long ago, you know, there were the celebration of, of Carry On, which is now, it's so far out of um, out of everyone's comfort zone and and we just have to hang in there and know that that society can incorporate all this but the transition period is painful yeah you you mentioned growing into your age in terms of the the roles that you're playing so were you always quite a kind of serious studious kid then no uh not at all but being tall and sort of um the way i speak and quite robust i was never a sort of breakable child uh, in terms of my casting. You know, I wanted to play Cordelia in King Lear, but you have to be carried on stage by a 70-year-old man uh, in the last <laughs> scene. And you know, physically, just wasn't going to happen. Um, uh, they were looking, you know, casting about for a 70-year-old who could carry an 11-stone woman um, uh, onto the main stage. So, so no, you know, it... it I don't feel I was ever particularly serious, but um, my casting has been quite serious. Um, it's been a constant dream of mine to to make people laugh, and occasionally I've been in I've been in a comedy, but no, I I um I don't think I was particularly serious. I can be but very serious. You played some very serious <laughs> roles, and currently playing Camilla Parker Bowles, well, the Queen, uh, as a younger woman when she was yes. is it, when she was first involved with Charles. Or is, have you got to the stage? Well, it's where very she's... well placed because she's, you know, she's a midpoint character, and she is my age when I started playing. She she was in her very late forties, I think, and I play her, you know, through her fifties. So yeah, it's a it's an opportunity to play um, uh, one of the world's most famous uh, women at her midpoint. Yeah, and she's she's by all accounts, when you look back at that, she was she was having a good a good time in her life. From what you know now and how you played her, do you think she was having a good life? I know I definitely play her through the through the darkest darkest right. days. Um, uh, I think she was having a good time. I think I think Emerald Fennell got to have the good time in in series, right. <laughs> series three and four. So things have got serious now, and she's and she's having a little bit more of a challenge in the relationship. It's an it was an awful time. I mean, I don't know if mm. you read any of the papers at the time, but what people were saying about Camilla 
or Her Majesty, uh, as we must now call her, um, when her affair was discovered and when Diana and Charles were splitting up, it was a dreadful time of her life and it caused the breakdown of her marriage, which seems to have been the kind of marriage that can withstand being a sort of open arrangement of sorts. Uh, But once Charles had admitted to the relationship on television, um, her marriage broke down, so she lost her home and her family set up. And um, she wasn't an official member of the royal family, so she had no security. All the pictures we see of her looking very cross or or sort of troubled is usually because she's just seen the photographer hiding in the bushes of her house um, and uh, he's taken a picture of her when he's trespassing on her property. So that's not, uh, as you and I both know, that's, that's not one's best moment. No. Well, she always seems very, I mean, I've met her a couple of times. I've been lucky enough to you know meet her and she seems like a very robust woman. You know, she's, she obviously had a lot to go through at that, at that point in her life. And what we know now as women in that stage of your life, so much is going on uh, as well as all the stuff people can see, you know, so much is going on internally in terms of, you know, perimenopause, menopause, all those changes that are happening that when you think about it, dealing with that, dealing with teenage children and everything else, it's, it's remarkable she came through as unscathed as she has. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what what she's done that's extraordinary is that she's never shown us the scathe. I don't think she's unscathed. I don't think she can be. But unlike some people, uh, she has been very restrained in um, demonstrating how much pain she was in at the time. And, um, you know, she's also a complete sandwich generation in that her children were growing up at the same time. Her parents were very ill. She's spoken very openly about her mother's uh, very painful and slow death from um, osteoporosis. And... um, I think she was in the middle of all of that as I don't I don't know about your situation but you, you know our children are hitting in fact a time that seems more demanding than me, than even breastfeeding if you can imagine such a thing um being a sort of late teenager and either the loss or decline of our of our beloved parents so it's a very tough age then yeah menopause um is a sort of blow to the head and the body at the, at the same time and um, sustaining uh, these two extraordinary relationships in, in her life, in Camilla's life with um, her husband and her, her lover who happens to be the Prince of Wales. <laughs> what what a role. What a role to play. I can't yeah, wait to I see know, this. I mean, so exciting. So exciting. And Dominic West, is he your, is he your king? Is, is he he is my king um, yeah. in so many senses. Um, no, he's, <laughs> he's, um, he's a delightful actor to work with and uh, we've had such fun. I can't imagine sort of trying to get through these scenes with any other without someone without a sense of humor we talked about a sense of humor earlier and um we're both convinced that a sense of humor is the is the essence of uh charles and camilla's success which by any standard now has to be considered a very successful relationship and um that survived so many so many things and uh, they seem to be laughing at and at the same thing whenever you see them together, which is quite like Dominic and me. We, we get on very well. <laughs> and it, it, the heart of the sort of famous uh, phone conversation, the, the sort of royal phone sex um, conversation for us was that they were lot. It was it was funny. They to them, they were they were joking. And it um, it was that kind of joking lovers talk. And once we'd found that route in, yeah, we haven't looked back. It's been great fun. There's a good chance you can bump into either of them, you know, either uh, the king or the queen at some point in your life. So have you always got that in your mind when you're playing somebody that's still alive? I did meet Camilla before, I think it might even be before The Crown was um, was a TV show. I was a judge on the Booker Prize and she is the patron of the Booker Prize because she's a great believer in literacy. And um, so, yeah, I met her. She has her children's, her and... uh, a BBC children's competition as well, doesn't she, that she runs? Yeah, she... she is a big part of. Mm. Yeah, her causes are, are are all things, again, you know, that seem deeply relevant to your show and to the midpoint and 
I'm a big admirer of her work in the area of domestic violence and coercive control. She's, you know, really championed those causes. And yeah, I'm, I'm an admirer. I'm a fan. Yeah, well, isn't this, look, this is not all about Camilla, although it is weird that you are playing uh, the most famous, one of the most famous women in the world at the time of her life that she's in the midpoint. So, uh, yeah, we yeah. have to address that. But uh, there's so much to talk to you about in terms of that you talked a little bit about the changing nature of Hollywood and particularly post Me Too. You kind of were catapulted into, you know, everybody's lives with some huge roles straight out of drama school. It felt like straight out of drama school and working alongside the likes of Kevin Costner and being right in that Hollywood kind of throng. And yet, and yet, you seem to have, although consistently worked, managed to avoid all the pitfalls and all the stuff that, you know, that, that can really become quite a big, heavy cloak to wear, you know, if you're at the centre of that Hollywood lifestyle. How did you do that? I don't know that I did it. It happened. I, I agree with you that I seem to have managed to avoid them and still earn a living as an actor. I think that is incredibly lucky some of it is to do with the choices I made some of those choices were insane in retrospect and stupid and you know jobs I should have taken turning things down yeah I mean I I think I've gone on the record as having read um the matrix and so I've gone I simply don't understand the plot (laughs) I couldn't go for a meeting on this because I wouldn't know what to say the only film I've ever walked out of (laughs) Oh, really? oh, good. Well, you're in a minority, I hope you realise, and many people. Are. And then, and then also, I was doing, uh, I was doing Rushmore, filming Rushmore, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of literary script writing I've ever come across. And I was sent The Mummy, um, and I was just like, oh no, I don't think so. It's like, where is Rachel Vice now? <laughs> she must regret <laughs> yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I've learned my lesson the hard way. So I ducked out of a lot of stuff. I I didn't get cast for not being famous enough. That's a double-edged sword, you know. I'm quite glad I'm not famous enough because it means I can go around Sainsbury's unmolested. Other supermarkets are available. But, you know, not being famous enough means that you can't play the lead role because you're not famous enough because you won't bring in enough box office to the perception of the money people. So it's it it's a it's a knife that cuts both ways. If you get famous enough, you can say goodbye to privacy and having windows on your house that don't have curtains and going on holiday and being able to be with your family without people videoing you while you're doing it. So I I have absolutely hit so far touch with the sweet spot and I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. And uh, what you touch on there in terms of being famous enough to greenlight a movie also now comes with this pressure, it seems, from young actresses that they have to have these massive social media accounts as well. How many followers have they got on, you know, on Instagram? Will that be enough for them to kind of be advertising their movies and all that stuff that um, seems to be another layer on that? You look at somebody like... Do you know um, that stuff now is contractual? It's, wow. It, 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 they're trying to put it in some very nameless, huge companies are insisting when you sign a contract that your personal Instagram and Snapchat and social media accounts are used with approved material from the studio or streaming service. So you've actually touched on a kind of human rights issue, which is just um, appalling. And you can imagine if some one of these large streaming services writes it in a contract that your very sweet and lovely agent uh, and their lawyer are not powerful enough to fight it. Mm. Presumably you feel you're you're in a situation or you're in a position in your career where you are able to to fight things like that. Do you worry for for younger more, you know, vulnerable actors and actresses I, at the beginning of their career? Uh, yes, I earn enough money to have an attorney in America who fights that stuff, but also I don't I am of a generation where I I just don't have any social media. You won't find me and if someone says they're me, they're they're lying, they're not me. I don't have any. So when they say, you know, you have to use your personal account, I you know, I was like that may be that may be losing me roles. I don't know. Now, you have had this lovely, it seems, it seems a really lovely career with lots of uh, interesting parts and, uh, and as you've just pointed out there, managed to kind of skirt around fame enough that it's not blighted your life and 
have been successfully married, which I think is probably the most important thing for, for the duration of that, to an actor as well. Rashan is an actor as well. So I, mean, I think that needs to be mentioned because it's very hard, it would appear, on the outside. When you look at kind of couples who work all the time or even if one of them isn't working, then you know to sustain that in a really challenging professional career is, is to be applauded. How have you done that, Olivia? We... Uh, love really helps. We love each other and we still love each other. Um, but we also did go into this. We were grown-ups when we got together. We'd both been around the block a few times and we went into the relationship wanting to have children and with a very supportive and practical attitude to work. Um, the result is that we were walking arm in arm down Maribyrn High Street the other morning and a, a man I, we've known for about 20 years said, I think this is the first time I've seen you together. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's not that we aren't together, it's that when we're together, we're alone together. But if we're out and about, one of us is home and the other one is out and about. And, you know, Rashan has, and I agreed when we got together, that parenting would be 50-50 and it wasn't going to be that only one of us could feed the children or only one of us could put them to bed. We can both do all of it, which frees the other person to work or play. And we also felt that we were strong enough together. We, we somehow, neither of us have the jealous gene. It's very difficult to go away and work and let the other person... Working is the fun bit and working involves socializing and having fun and uh, fortunately when I get a picture of Rashan uh, you know in Cape Town um, out with the cast of, of Strike Back it it fills my heart with joy that he's having a great time and not searing jealousy or worry that he'll he won't come back to me but yeah jealousy is a is a is a really tough thing to live with and we're just very lucky we don't mm. suffer from it. My mum always used to say to me, "Jealousy is a wasted emotion," it's, and she's, she's right. It's just, right. It doesn't just doesn't do any. It doesn't do any good for anybody, does it? And thankfully, no. I you know don't have any of that in in my relationship with my husband as well yeah. because it's horrible. Although one girlfriend, when I first met him, and I was feeling kind of that angst when you're not with him, she and she was also from Yorkshire. She said, "New shoes hurt," <laughs> and um and I I kind of get that as well when you're at the beginning of a relationship. You know that yeah. slight kind of feeling of, yeah. oh yeah. God, is this? And that feels like a long time ago now, Olivia. Yeah. I can tell you, we've been together. <laughs> Uh, oh, 23 years. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is, at the moment, seems to be really great in terms of home and work and what's going on. However, you have had a really challenging time health-wise. And we go back to the, you've talked about it publicly. So this isn't the first time that you've, you've, you've talked about it. But go back to the diagnosis that you first had, uh, which was for lupus, I believe. Yes, I had some very strange symptoms which didn't elicit much sympathy because it seemed to be um, actress allergic to champagne, which you can imagine taking that to your GP, uh, who's got eight minutes to cure every ill in uh, a very difficult uh, central London general practice. But I, this slight redness uh, and, and sort of swelling of hands and feet and but I'm going to go into some really unpleasant uh, symptoms now. So for those of you who are squeamish, switch off. Um, that ge general practitioner thought it wise to send me to a rheumatologist and the rheumatologist 
did ran some tests and came up with lupus. Lupus is such a strange illness. It's such a series of unrelated, difficult to prove symptoms. And for a couple of years, I was treated for lupus, uh, which I did not have. <laughs> but once they decided I didn't have lupus, I was sort of released back into the wilderness um, with a weird set of symptoms involving, you know, upset stomach, loose stools, redness occasionally. And everyone just loved to tell me that I was perimenopausal because that was the easiest thing to say about these nebulous uh, symptoms I had. Um, but I remember saying to Rashan, you know, something's going on with my body they're telling me it's perimenopausal if this is what perimenopause is like you know let's we we're gonna need to put on our tin hats that you know this is not isn't gonna be fun but sue four years of of these symptoms getting worse and worse eventually the upset stomach became that i had malnutrition and was so dehydrated they couldn't actually take blood tests anymore and it forced a doctor in Los Angeles to um, do enough tests eventually to find out that I had a one in 10 million type of cancer called a vasoactive intestinal polypeptide carcinoma in my Does pancreas. it have an acronym? <laughs> uh, a vipoma. Well, it, what was, the thing that pleased me was, was, uh, was the VIP bit, um, which I was like, finally, <laughs> I made it past the red rope. Uh, not Olivia. in the sense that I wanted to, but yeah, I had, there was a, there was a VIP in my person. But pancre pancreatic cancer and cancer of the pancreas are, it's one of those cancers that people say, <gasps> because there's a very, very low uh, survival rate from pancreas cancer. So how are you here? What, what happened next? So the cancer was in my pancreas, but it was not what is commonly known as pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is the cancer that kills so many people so very quickly. And we all know Alan Rickman uh, being a, a sort of prime example of one day he was there and the next day he wasn't. That's what I thought I had for about five minutes. And those five minutes um, were very, very miserable until the specialist told me that I had a type of cancer called neuroendocrine cancer, of which a vipoma is a type. It's so technical. It's so rare. It's what Steve Jobs died of. And it's what Aretha Franklin died of. So, you know, I'm not completely in the clear. Um, those two people were both famous and are both dead. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's frightening. But what is uh, the good thing about my cancer is it's slow growing. So you don't have to run around, you know, tying up all the loose ends and your mortgages and debts and say goodbye to everybody. But it's this strange present participle, which is living with the cancer, you know, where you're just anybody who's had um, breast cancer and is it, you know, has been told that they'll check you for five years and then, and then, you know, you're just kind of playing a waiting game. You know, it's that, it's that kind of feeling. But yeah, I consider myself So lucky. did you have, you had treatment? My cancer is so rare that they, it's a bit medieval, the treatment, it's chop it out. <laughs> so they just keep chopping it out. Um, well, it's a bit like whack-a-mole. Every time it pops up, you just chop it out. Uh, things are changing so quickly with cancer and all these cancers that they call rare, they're finding out aren't so rare. They've just been undiagnosed. And um, the lovely charity I work for, Neuroendocrine Cancer UK, are just about to talk about these new pathways to early diagnosis. Too late for me, but um, I very much want to promote and bring everyone's attention to the importance of early diagnosis because the really annoying thing was when I first started having symptoms, the cancer was probably only in my pancreas and it could have probably stopped right there. But I was diagnosed a bit too late and it had, I was probably so symptomatic because it had spread to my liver and um, those keep on popping up. So it's, it's annoying and early diagnosis just saves lives, saves money, saves horrible operations and um, these little cancer cells um, zipping around your internal organs, choosing where they're going to show up next. The, the diagnosis for lupus, 
obviously kind of diverted your attention for a while, didn't it? Because you thought you'd found the thing that was wrong with your body. Um, I imagine that happens quite a lot with, with misdiagnosis of, of cancers like this. So is this what you're kind of helping the charity to work towards is, is finding and detecting these cancers earlier? And how are they going to do that? Yeah, well, it you know, it's wonderful things like in, instead of the, the only way for me was to have these very expensive and multiple scans and then a biopsy to dig a hole in you, take a bit out and, and see what it is. Whereas these things are detectable in spit and urine and feces and blood. And, you know, we've just got to um, find the clues in, um, there's a wonderful woman who survived pancreatic cancer, which is the really nasty one. She wants to start a campaign called the mm. clue in the loo, which I think is such a brilliant title. Um, cause it I makes love it. you laugh. Yeah. Um, so, you know, take an interest <laughs> in what's coming out the other end and it's consistency and, uh, any changes and, you know, any changes over a long period of time, uh, are a signal that something's not right. But I had, I took my, you know, I'm clearly, you know, disinhibited. I am happy to talk about these things. I took jam jars of samples into doctors to show them what was going on. And more than one GP rolled their wheelie chair away, shouting, you know, why are you show in Germany, why are you showing me this? Takes us away from me. Um, and I was like, I'm showing it to you because first of all, it's fascinating. Have you ever seen that like that before? And second of all, you're a doctor. So um, yeah. yeah, you should not I, be squeamish about this. <laughs> I mean, it's like, if I can't show you, who can I show? I'm, you know, my husband's not interested, my kids. Are, Maybe. Anyway, um, so, yeah, it, it's the clue in the loo. Get in there, have a good look. And if it's not what you expect to see and it's not what you saw last week and, it, and or last year or the last six years, please go and tell somebody and make them look at it. <laughs> the amazing thing is that is to be able to test for these rare cancers in the GP surgery um, and not have to trouble the uh, scanning department at your hospital and the radiologists of which there is a massive shortage is simple simple tests that anyone can do for early diagnosis when the treatment is cheap and not life-threatening. So does that mean that while all that's going on you obviously were going through perimenopausal well I assume you're going through some kind of perimenopausal symptoms at that age but you actually got away with that because you, they, they were actually lesser to what was happening with the rest of your body. I just don't know, Gabby. I'm sorry. I wish I could be that sort of woman who knows her body. But I came out of all that with, uh, you know, I don't have a pan I have half a pancreas, no spleen, no gallbladder, chunks of liver missing. I just came <laughs> out of it and said, could somebody give me some hormones? Because <laughs> If they, if they, I don't know what it's I the feel, least I, deserve. I feel that some estrogen and progesterone would do some good. So I'm exactly. And they sort of it was quite nice. They sort of fast tracked me. I um, that I had to go through the usual barriers to seeing a consultant on the NHS. And I got some very weary woman going and I started telling her and she said, Could, do you know what? Could I go in the driving seat here? Can I ask you the questions? And I was just like. Do you know what? No, because you're never going to get to the question, have you had a vasoactive intestinal polypeptide carcinoma? So why don't I just tell you that up front? And she did listen to me, but uh, only after a slightly patronising yeah. uh, exchange of I think people of, need to be a bit uh, more views. Olivia, yeah. I think, when they're going in to, um, to see a lot of the, the doctors to, to get their, to whatever <laughs> it is that you, you're worried about. Um, <laughs> Do you know what? I'm I'm coming out of this script really well. I've rewritten <laughs> it. You understand that it wasn't like that at all. And actually, one of the things you said, why, why are you talking about this? One of my crazy conversations with the lupus clinic was they would ask me things like, are you feeling tired? Are you depressed? Are you stressed? And I was like, I'm an actor, okay? If you tell me an emotion, I'm going to feel it. That's my job. And equally, if you told me, are you happy, unstressed and successful, I would say yes to that as well. And they couldn't get their heads around someone who who was admitting to feeling whatever they told me to feel. I was the worst <laughs> patient because I'm so suggestible. 
And they would say, are you tired? I go, yes, I'm exhausted. It's like, but you take lots of exercise. Yes, I take yoga every day and I cycle and I'm fine. And, you know, it's very hard for the doctors when you get someone like me because I that's, I am what you tell me. It's to good be. for it's good for GPs um, to know that, isn't and it? So, well, I don't know. In a way, I stopped saying that because they stopped taking me seriously. They just, I mean, literally, my my exit note from the Lupus Clinic was, you know, could do with some psychiatric evaluation. Your entire podcast audience may agree with that, but that's not what was wrong with me. I had cancer. Not I. I may be crazy and have cancer. And I know crazy is a is a controversial word, and I apologize to anyone with mental health problems. But I may have had mental health yeah. problems, but <laughs> and, I also have um, and I'm so glad that you got the diagnosis uh, when you did, and that and that you look very healthy, and you look well, and you're um, and you're obviously working hard. So the energy levels are good. But I'm going to bring in <laughs> our expert today, Pippa Campbell, because energy levels are one of the many yeah. things that she is brilliant at uh, restoring to a lot of women, especially in midlife. Her recent book, Eat Right, Lose Weight, um, has has changed a lot of people's lives, and and she looks at diet and lifestyle particularly closely at this period of life. Pippa, you've been listening into Olivia there talking about her health challenges. And actually, one of the things that you do is testing to look at people's kind of propensity to cancers and other female related illnesses and changing your diet accordingly. So having listened to Olivia there, and Olivia, if you've got any nutritional questions, now is the time. Uh, What are your first thoughts, Pippa? Well, what I found interesting um, is that you keep talking about signs and symptoms. And what I love is the fact that you're you are really trying to raise awareness. And it's these signs and symptoms if people get them early. So you're talking about some really serious conditions here. On my part, you know, most women are coming to see me because they want to sort out their hormones or they want to lose weight. So less serious things, but they're still affecting their life. But what I'm trying to teach them is signs and symptoms. Yes, we can do testing. And I know, Gabby, you've done DNA testing with me. And that's amazing. But signs and symptoms are key. So if you can get those signs and symptoms, as you say, early and actually quite often what what I've seen over the years in clinic, it's that women have these signs and symptoms before perhaps they gain the weight or or before perimenopause. There's quite often these early clues. And I created these seven metabolic types for my book. And really they were based on, I suppose, different conditions, different body imbalances that I would see women suffering from in clinic. So yes, my book is called Eat Right, Lose Weight, but it could be called Eat Right, for your type but that title's gone um, <laughs> but you know so it's not just a weight loss book so the first um, chapter so you do a questionnaire at the beginning of the book and you do they're all signs and symptoms so there would be signs and symptoms for it could be a digestion type or insulin type or detox in your case i'd be interested in looking at your detox because you don't have a gallbladder so that's part of how we filter through our toxins and then break down our fats But so we've got these different metabolic types, so cortisol, thyroid, estrogen, serotonin, and people do a questionnaire. And where they score highest, that would be the type that they would work on, eat the right foods, follow the right meal plan. And you were talking about a clue in the loo. I love that. I'm going to steal that phrase. I think it's fantastic because it was the digestion type. I get women coming to see me saying, you know, they come to me because they can't lose weight. They want me to help them lose weight. And I don't talk about the weight loss. And they're like, what? I came to see you for weight loss and you're asking me about my poo. You know, and I'll be saying, they might say they're a bit bloated or they get wind, but I'm saying, but is it smelly? You know, <laughs> and what's the consistency of your poo? And how quickly do you get bloated? And when you eat, you know, fats, you know, do you see fat in your poo? So I am all for inspecting our poo. And you're right. Why can't you, why can't you take your poo to your doctor? I mean, they shouldn't be horrified with the poo. I no. mean, this is like the clues we can get from poo is amazing. Olivia, are you now uh, having to adapt your diet then quite specifically because of the things that have been taken out of you and how you can digest and detoxify? Well, um, having only half a pancreas and no gallbladder, I actually have to take a drug called Creon, which is um, an enzyme that help break down fat and I take a uh, I'm injected once a month with a drug called somatulin which um yeah the the 
clues in my loo you nobody needs to see those or indeed smell those it's you know the the effect of not having these hormones and enzymes in the right quantity are absolutely miserable um it's really opened my what, eyes what, what do you to, advise to not eat well uh fatty food uh like you know deep fried food uh, I, I my body finds it very hard to digest and and i have to sort of take a handful you know i literally take more of the creon depending on the, the type of food i'm eating and and foods that are, that work really well for you um it's the good old leafy green vegetable that i i go i don't know if pippa's heard of a, a place i i shouldn't give them a plug but anyway i go to the meyer clinic in uh, austria and at the end of a week of eating their wonderful potato-based vegetable soups, I uh, feel absolutely fabulous. And then on the airport, the way back, I eat um, 25 Ritter Sport chocolate bars. So I, you know, I am my own worst enemy. <laughs> and the, re- the reason I found out that my pancreas was in trouble was my complete addiction to sugar, um, which I've, you know, I, and I, the consequences for me when I have sugar are appalling because I only have it's it's slightly like being diabetic but you know I don't have the willpower to control it so I I'm hugely sympathetic with all listeners who want to make changes but you know I I am a complete believer in in sugar as an addiction as bad as as alcohol or heroin Oh, absolutely. And it's just, you know, your drug dealers, the sugar dealer, drug dealer is just at the end of your road. So every corner shop is basically a drug dealer. You're right. But you'll be looking, you see, because the sugars will give you a quick fix of energy as well. And as you say, with half a pancreas, so we're talking about the effects on insulin, but also you won't be producing enough pancreatic enzymes, which break down food. So those are there to help us break down our food so that we can extract the nutrients from our food. So that's to help with digestion. So that you take away some of your pancreas, then automatically, yes, you can't break down your food as well. So you'll need those, you'll need the creon. And then without a gallbladder, and actually so many women have their gallbladder removed. It's amazing how many women, are the messages I get on Instagram saying, oh, but I've had my gallbladder removed. And every time I do posts on gallbladder, it goes crazy with people saying, oh, what, what do I do now? I've had mine removed. So then you have to think, well, why? Now, we understand in your case why you've had your gallbladder removed. But there are so many other links with thyroid, for example, because thyroid hormones, particularly there's a thyroid hormone called T3, and that helps the gallbladder contract. Now, if your gallbladder isn't contracting very well, then this bile, which breaks down fats, and it's sitting in the gallbladder, it's like a tank for your bile, the gallbladder, then if it's not contracting, it's not releasing this bile. And it can just stay there and it can thicken and it can then form into gallstones. So then of course, next thing they're having the gallbladder whipped out. So that could be actually because it was thyroid, low thyroid that was causing the problem in the first place and also female hormones. So a lot of us have, I'm one of them, a lot of estrogen surging through their body, particularly in perimenopause when actually estrogen can go sky high, particularly at the beginning of perimenopause, you get these massive, crazy surges. And we have to detoxify that. I call it, you know, use it and lose it. So we we love estrogen, but we don't want too much of it. Now we have to detoxify it just like everything else. So it goes through the liver, the bile, then carries out these toxins, as well as cholesterol and everything else. And, you know, the alcohol that people are drinking and all sorts of other things, the sugar, stores it in the gallbladder, these toxins, this estrogen, and waits for the gallbladder to be contracted and then release them. Then it goes through the intestines and it's supposed to go out in your poo, flush the loo, gone, thank you very much. So you can see there's quite a journey. So if we have too much estrogen and toxins and things like that, then that can overload the bile. And then it gets stored in the gallbladder and it's just all sticky and sludgy and and inflamed. So there's these strong links with hormones like estrogen, thyroid. Really? Um, I know, because you think, well, why are all these women having to get their gallbladder removed? And the doctors will say, you don't need your gallbladder. But as you know, as you can tell everyone, as you've been saying, the effects when you don't have a gallbladder, because that's where you store the bile that breaks down your fat. So now eat your things on the way back from the airport, having done your lovely week in the Mayo Clinic. And you've probably been given these lovely, bitter, green leafy vegetables that help with bile flow and lots of liver supportive foods and, and lower fats, particularly saturated fats. So you're like, hey, this is this is good. 
but obviously it's hard because it's not always sustainable but you know what it's like then when you just put one foot wrong Mm. and uh, just people listening who want to know kind of how to prevent getting to that stage then if you are if you have a propensity to have this um, hormone through your thyroid activity that might lead to gallstones and then the gallbladder removing take it back a few stages can you hack that you absolutely can hack it. I'm all about hacking. So I'm all about why. So I'm that child that would go, why, why? So in consultations, so I, you know, my, my clients would always be like, oh my God, it's not another question. <laughs> so be why, why? Because I want to find the why of the why, the root cause, as you say, we're taking it back here. So if it is a thyroid issue, which is in my book, then you'd want to read the thyroid type. And that's got the food, the right foods to eat. And I talk about exercise as well. So somebody uh, messaged me on Instagram a few days ago and she said, I'm so glad I found your book because I was putting on weight. I didn't know why. She was exercising like crazy, but she was doing a lot, a lot of hit and cardio. No weight training or anything. She's just doing a lot of hit and cardio, but the weight was going on and she didn't understand why. And then she read my book and she said, the first thing I saw was outer, um, out a third of eyebrow, losing out a third of eyebrow as one of the symptoms of the thyroid type. And she's like, oh my goodness, yes. She'd said she'd been penciling in her eyebrows. So she read that and then the cold hands and feet, she thought, this is me, this is this is me, I'm the thyroid type. So she then followed the plan. She lost weight. I don't know how much, because she doesn't like scales. She's gone by, I spoke Dress to her this morning, she's gone by trousers. Right. Yeah, and she said her jeans, she said, literally, she said, it's hilarious. They've got this saggy bit where her, her belly used to be. So she's now got all her trousers and jeans with this sort of saggy front bit, <laughs> like you know the maternity trousers. Maybe time time to buy some new jeans, but um, but but I know. yeah, but that's that's the hacking of it, and uh, as well as losing the weight, which she wanted to do, presumably then also um, hopefully uh, not encountering those other problems later down the line. Thank you so much for your time, Pippa. It's always great to hear from you. Thank and you. Um, is there anything before Pippa goes, Olivia? Any any quick nutritional uh, tips you want to take away? Well, I I just you are what you eat. I, I believe that now at midpoint and all the people who say, you know, it's okay. And, and I absolutely believe in a little bit of, of everything is great, but the prize of the candy for the kids and, you know, cupcakes and treats and good things coming with sugar, just no, no, don't do it to your pancreas. Please, everybody take care of it. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. That's what I wanted to say when you talked about the gallbladder. Take care of it. <laughs> yeah. Sugar is uh, the addictive product that is most available to everybody in every walk of life, isn't it? That I think is the message that we've just got to keep banging on, mm. I think, and uh, hopefully it will hit home at some point. But um, thank you so much, Pippa. As always, lovely to see you. you. And look at her glowing. She's such a great uh, advert for her nutritional knowledge and, uh, and well-being. Um, <laughs> Olivia, now, are you um, are you still able to partake in, in a glass of champagne? I do. Well, now, now the... Um, no, the... I, haven't, I haven't got any for you, by the way. <laughs> yes, thanks. Um, no, I, I again everything in moderation, and and it is amazing as as you say when the consequences are truly awful. There's no better way to moderate yourself. But you know that there's a, I had a, a an eccentric aunt. You know the she was the 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 smoker with one lung. I feel a bit like that. You know I I just you have to really live live the philosophy but not be too hard on yourself if you if you fail and um the the psychology i find the psychology of failing and binging and punishing is is uh is fascinating and i think women of our age are just full of so many people telling you what to do and how you should be and uh if you can combine pippa's wonderful advice with some kind of self-love and self-compassion uh at the same time that's probably a more winning formula yeah i think it's any anything to excess is going to be so much harder to maintain isn't it yeah. and it's small steps and small habits um, and what we haven't touched on amazingly at all which i'll finish with if it's all right with you is going through all your hollywood experiences and being an actress and midlife and your terrible health kind of journey for those few years is body image which you know is such a huge still such a huge topic in terms of actresses being judged for you know how they look and what they're wearing and uh, all of those things 
again, you, you seem to, I mean, maybe it's because you're such a classic beauty, <laughs> but you seem to have also um, have a very healthy uh, approach to that as well. Have you ever succumbed to that feeling that you weren't hitting the type or you weren't quite right for what they wanted? It's a strange sort of probably misplaced confidence. I just never was self-conscious. And I think, I, you know, I think to a fault probably, um, to the point where I had to, I did a film not long ago, definitely in my midpoint, where I had to swim naked in a pool in a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I was just like, great, kit off, jump in the pool. And it was only when I got out of the pool into a bunch of towels where Arnold turned to me and said, I haven't seen a bush like that since the 80s. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't care. <laughs> I didn't go wax before I did the scene. I didn't, th I thought there wasn't time. I forgot. And, you know, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I I think that is is worth doing is swimming with a bush like that with Arnold Schwarzenegger just for the just for the anecdote. I mean, God, what a perfect way to end the podcast. I think, and and I think the closing line there, I just don't care, is just about what midpoint's all about, really, isn't it? Gabby, I just don't care. <laughs> Olivia, it's been really great chatting to you. Thank you so, so much for being so candid and being also so inspiring in terms of the, the journey that you went on to find out ultimately that you did have a very rare form of cancer because I think that relentlessness and pursuit of your you know, health and wanting to be better um, will help so many other people and people listening to this, I think, will have a look and know that the clue is in the loo. Thank you. Thank you for having me and giving me the chance to talk about neuroendocrine cancer and uh, and not punishing yourself if you don't live up to, to the high standards we're all expected to have. Well, I think Olivia Williams might just have delivered the greatest anecdote we've heard on The Midpoint so far. I don't think anybody else has mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger in quite those terms. Uh, wasn't she absolutely brilliant? And a huge thanks also to female health nutritionist Pippa Campbell for her advice on how to best nurture your body. I've got loads more interesting midpointers lined up for you, so join me again next Wednesday when I'm going to be chatting to this lovely person. And then she saw me and she went, oh my God, see? I said, how did that happen? One minute, she can't wipe her ass on her own. The next minute, she's blanking me on public transport. And then, you know, when he came to taking the way to university, I found that appalling. Remember, I always want to hear from you as well, so please rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. You can also hit follow to make sure you never miss an episode. Thank you to Spiritland Productions for putting The Midpoint together. And my biggest thanks go, of course, to you for listening. I hope you can join me again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 